Luke 9, 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Many of you know the date, October 31, 1517. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. It was the beginning of Reformation. While Martin Luther, William Farrell, John Calvin, John Knox, Philip Melanchthon, Zwingli, and others may have had some theological differences, they all came to understand the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ alone. They believe that we cannot work for our salvation nor earn it through any human effort. We receive eternal life as a free gift of God. Because the Reformers unashamedly preached the biblical gospel of grace, they all faced, in varying degrees, resistance, ridicule, and persecution. Some had to flee. They were hunted and threatened. Some were arrested and imprisoned, and some paid the ultimate price, executed for their faith. The commitment of the reformers is well summarized in Luther's hymn, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Well, brothers and sisters, today, in light of Josiah's and Mariella's profession of faith, we want to consider what it means to be a disciple of Christ and what those who follow him can expect. Our text describes the essence of genuine Christian discipleship, and it reminds us that the Christian life is not necessarily health, wealth, and prosperity. On the contrary, the Christian life may very well be one of suffering, rejection, and even death. As we ponder these verses together, I want to draw your attention to two things. First, the requirements of true discipleship, and second, the alternative to true discipleship. Our text begins with the requirements, the requirements. Look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 23. Then he said to them all, 
If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, when I speak of the requirements of true discipleship, I should emphasize from the outset that in these verses, Jesus is not telling us how to become Christians. He's not saying that if you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, your sins will be forgiven, and you'll have eternal life. Rather, he is describing the loving, sacrificial commitment of those who are already saved. He's not saying, this is how you pass through the door. No, he's saying, this describes the commitment of all who have already gone through the door. Three verbs are used to describe what every disciple must do. Deny, take up, and follow. You don't do this to become a Christian. You live like this, revealing that you are a Christian. What Jesus does here in verse 23 is describe three important marks of genuine discipleship. Self-denial, cross-bearing, and following. First of all, what did he mean when he spoke of self-denial? What do you think of when you see that word, self-denial? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. To deny yourself is to disown the old unregenerate nature, to disown the old self. That word there, deny, in verse 23, means to completely disown. It's the same word that is used to describe Peter's denial of Christ in the courtyard of the high priest. You'll recall how Peter firmly disowned him. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of denial that we are to make with regard to ourselves. We are to completely disown ourselves with respect to our old nature. That's why our form for public profession of faith uses the language of despising or abhorring yourself. To deny yourself is to say with the apostle, for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. True self-denial is to abhor what you are by nature apart from the regenerating grace of the Spirit. Furthermore, self-denial also means that you consciously turn away from a self-centered, self-seeking life and to begin to pursue a God-centered, Christ-centered life. You see, ever since the fall of Adam, the human race has been extremely self-centered. The motto of the human race has been, my will be done. Our natural tendency is to serve ourselves. We are extremely selfish so that our own interests and desires are the chief concern of our lives. We seek our own will, our own fame, our own name, our own glory, our own pleasures, and our own comfort. But Jesus said, those who come after me must turn away from the God of self. My disciples seek my will, my name, my fame, my interests, and my desires. Brothers and sisters, to deny yourself is to say with the hymn writer, all to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow, worldly pleasures all forsaken, take me, Jesus, take me now, I surrender all. 
That is the language of self-denial. It is to reject the egocentric, self-deifying urge with which we are born. It is to say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. That's the language of self-denial. In an interview with the Washington Post, actress Shirley MacLaine once said this, the most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own identity, and that's what I've been trying to do all my life." End quote. Shirley MacLaine expressed what is really quite natural to the unregenerate heart. Self is number one. Love yourself, live for yourself, serve yourself. Her words are the very antithesis of what Jesus is saying in our text. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Congregation, Josiah and Mariella have said before you and before God that they want to follow the path of genuine discipleship. Their name is not important. Their fame is not important. Their will is not important. God's name, God's fame, and God's will should be the goal and focus of their life. That should be true for all of us who have confessed the name of Christ. We pray that this will be the desire of our covenant sons and daughters as they grow in understanding he must increase and I must decrease. Our culture tells us to get what we want out of life, satisfy your cravings, do whatever feels good. But Jesus declared, deny yourself. One writer said, listen, this means saying no to sin, no to ungodly attitudes, no to unhealthy relationships, no to self-indulgent acquisitions, no to things that waste our time, and no to physical pleasures that sap our spiritual strength. It also means saying no to many things that are good in themselves, but are not God's will for us, at least at the present time. And then congregation, sacrificial commitment is also seen in the second mark of a true disciple, namely, cross-bearing. Jesus said, verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross. What is this cross that Jesus is referring to? Well, if you back up to verse 22, Jesus had just taught his disciples that he had to suffer many things and would finally be killed. Then in verse 23, he says, take up your cross. 
In verse 22, he revealed himself as the suffering Messiah. In verse 23, Jesus said that because of their relationship with him, his disciples would also suffer. What happens to me will also happen to you. When Jesus said, take up your cross, he was saying that Christians must be ready and willing to suffer for his sake. Jesus went to the cross and suffered and died for his people. Now his people must be really ready and willing to bear hardship, persecution, and even death as we tread in his steps. The custom under Roman rule was that if a man was sentenced to death by crucifixion, he had to carry his own crossbeam to the place of execution. To take up his cross meant that such a one was going to suffer and die. When Jesus used this expression, his disciples would have clearly understood what he meant. He was calling them to devote themselves wholeheartedly to him, even if it meant death. To be willing to pay any price, any price, for Christ's sake. doesn't mean that all Christians are called to be martyred. Some Christians, such as ourselves, currently live in a free nation where there is no physical persecution. But all Christians must be willing to suffer and even be martyred for his name's sake. Under some radical Islamic and communist regimes, Christians are singled out for campaigns of hate and terror. It is said that in some 60 countries, millions of Christians face persecution. According to one organization, one in eight Christians worldwide live in countries where they may face persecution. One in eight. It is said that today more than 350 million Christians around the world suffer extreme persecution and discrimination for their faith in Jesus. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed. Every day, 12 churches or church buildings are attacked. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Christians face beatings, torture, rapes, slavery, and forced marriages. This hasn't come to Canada yet, but it's obvious that Christian values are no longer cherished by the majority of Canadians. And we have been seeing an increasing hostility against the Christian faith by those in leadership. It is now asserted by many that homosexuality and transgenderism are perfectly acceptable, while Christians who teach the loving and liberating truths of the Bible regarding such subjects are evil. It is asserted by many that same-sex marriage is good, healthy, and normal, and those who hold to the biblical definition of marriage are intolerant, narrow-minded bigots. You see, brothers and sisters, the direction that our nation is heading means that we may be facing difficult years. But Jesus says to each one of us, don't hide in a closet. Live for me, even if it means hardship and death. He says to Josiah and Mariella, come after me and die if need be.
Be prepared to be ridiculed in your university, in the business world, in the factory, in the workplace, in the political realm, in the community. Take up your cross. I came across a letter that was sent by a pastor who was away on a trip teaching in a congregation near Caesarea. He sent a letter to a friend in England, also a pastor, and in that letter he described a visit to an impressive stone amphitheater where at one time Christians were torn to pieces by wild beasts. Beneath the seats of the amphitheater there was a tunnel through which the beasts would enter. And at the side of the tunnel was a chamber where criminals and Christians waited to be sent to their public death. The pastor who wrote the letter said this, I quote, I don't think that we can adequately convey the sense that we had standing in that horrible tunnel of what our spiritual ancestors endured for the sake of our Lord Jesus. They could clearly hear the roar of the crowd, much like that in a football stadium, only these people were thirsting to see them torn to pieces by lions or flayed alive, all as a spectacle for their entertainment. We'd known this had occurred in Rome, but we were standing in another place where such events occurred. It was very difficult to get control, and even as I write these words, the tears come. This pastor went on to say, we know nothing of suffering, nothing. Many Christians died here in such a fashion. They died in the faith, believing, and they are this very day honored within the portals of heaven for their martyrdom. May we stand fast whatever our Lord sends to us as our portion, strengthened by the knowledge of his grace, which thus supported these precious brethren in their hour of deepest need. That fund of grace is never depleted, not ever. End quote. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord give to Josiah and Mariella and to each one of us a willingness to suffer for his sake. Deny yourself and take up your cross, strengthened by the knowledge of his grace. And then thirdly, Jesus goes on to say in verse 23, follow me. Follow me. The tense of the verb indicates a continuing relationship. Discipleship is not just a one-time decision. It's a continuous, ongoing commitment to the Lordship of Christ. The true disciple is one who follows him to the very end. What Josiah and Mariella have done here this morning is only the beginning of a lifelong commitment. Every day we are to follow him. Every day we must strive to be obedient to his word. Following Christ is not just something we do on Sunday when we go to church. It is Sunday through Saturday. It's not merely acknowledging Him when the way is smooth and easy. It is loving and serving Him in every circumstance of life. We follow the captain of our salvation. We desire to model our lives after His example. We desire to walk in absolute submission to His will. That is the path of genuine discipleship. That is the path that God has chosen for Josiah and Mariella. It's not an easy, relaxing, or comfortable path, but it is the path of life, joy, and peace.
A great general once said to his recruits, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor provisions. I offer hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles, and death. Let him who loves his country in his heart and not with his lips only follow me. Jesus did not promise that our way would be easy, but he did promise to be with us to the end as we follow him. Well, let's move on then from the requirements of true discipleship to the alternative. Point number two, the alternative. Look with me again in your Bibles to verses 24 and 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? While the cost of discipleship may seem rather intimidating, what's the alternative? What's the cost for those who will not deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him? A true disciple is one who believes that losing means winning. He believes that the one who is willing to forsake all, even life itself, if necessary, for the sake of Christ, is the one who will receive life eternal in the presence of God. Losing means winning. The one who desires to save his earthly physical life and personal interest by not following Christ that person will lose his opportunity for eternal life. In that case, winning means losing. Jesus states his case so powerfully in verse 25. He asks a very significant question. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Mark's gospel says, for what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? A true disciple is one who believes that his soul is more valuable than the entire world. This earth will pass away, but his soul is eternal. Congregation, there are millions of people who work, trade, and gamble to get ahead in the world. They invest their money in one thing after another to get ahead. And there's certainly nothing wrong with investing money wisely and honestly. But for millions of people, the increase of money and possessions is their passion and goal. They want more and more, the latest, greatest, and most impressive. They're captivated by such things as fashion, parties, social events, large homes, swimming pools, cottages, cars, trucks, and yachts. And there's certainly nothing wrong with enjoying the good things of this life, right? But so many people have little regard for the value of their soul. They strive to gain a part of this world, but in the end, they lose what is far more important, their own soul. Notice, congregation, how Jesus sets before us a weigh scale, as it were. On one side of the scale, he puts the whole world on that side of the scale, you find 
gold, silver, diamonds in abundance and every precious stone. On that side of the scale, you find agricultural wealth, fields, crops, forests, industry, cities, and all the sensual delights of the world. On that side of the scale, you find all the toys, trinkets, and pleasures of life. There are mansions, palaces, and merchandise of every kind. On that side of the scale, you find unimaginable splendor, honor, power, and delicacies, oil and wine, food and ex excitement. It's all there. On that side of the scale is the beauty, glory, physical strength, and glittering prizes. But then what does John put on the other side of the scale? One single soul. And what happens to the way scale? The one soul easily outweighs the entire world. Your soul is more valuable, precious, and important than all the gold, fame, prizes, and pleasures of the world. Jesus says to us, what does it profit you if you owned the world? What does it profit you if you owned uh, everything on that side of the scale? But at death, your soul is lost in hell forever. Imagine having everything on that side of the scale for 60, 70, 80, maybe even 90 or 100 years. A life of whining, dining, feasting, pleasure, and more pleasure. But then at death, you are cast in hell forever where there is absolutely nothing pleasurable. You have everything your heart desires for 80, 90, 100 years. But at death, you perish forever and ever and ever and ever. No joy, no Christ, no hope, no happiness, nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth under the eternal wrath of an angry God. What a terrible state to find yourself in everlasting hopelessness. One writer recounted the story of the most famous living author of the 1930s, William Somerset Maugham. Willie, as he was known, was an accomplished novelist, playwright, and short story writer. He was a man who lived for his own refined tastes, comfort, and sexual perversions. In 1965, at the age of 91, he was still a fabulously rich man, although he had not written a word in years. He still received over 300 fan letters a week. What had life brought him? The London Times carried this excerpt by his nephew, Robin. Robin had gone to visit him, and this is what he wrote. I looked round the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remember that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the window, windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth millions. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman. 
but it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wrinkled with age, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I came across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that the text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. Robin goes on to describe an empty, bitter old man who repeatedly fell into shrieking terrors, crying, Go away! I'm not ready! I'm not dead yet, I tell you! He was a man who had gained the whole world, and as far as we know, lost his own soul. Brothers and sisters, is this portion of Scripture just a lot of bunk? Just a lot of bunk? Certainly not. Jesus was telling us that the most foolish decision that a man can make is to give up his soul salvation for the sake of this present world. True discipleship requires that we are fully convicted of these truths, truths that sound strange to the world. Many today are like the farmer in Jesus' parable who was very successful materially. He built bigger barns to store his excellent crops and goods. He was rich. He had made it. He said to himself, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night, what? Your soul will be required of you. He gave up his soul's salvation for the sake of this present world. May that not be said of any of you who are here today. Now is a good time to examine your priorities. What are you living for? Who are you living for? What are your goals and ambitions? Is your soul's salvation more important to you than the temporary pleasures and thrills of this life? Are Christ and the gospel your greatest treasure? Can you honestly say with the hymn writer, Hence with earthly treasure, thou art all my pleasure, Jesus, all my choice. Hence thou empty glory, not to me thy story told with tempting voice. Pain or loss or shame or cross shall not from my Savior move me, since he deigns to love me. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his own soul. May each one of you seriously ponder the needs of your soul and turn to Christ who alone can deliver you from hell. In verse 26, Jesus continues in the same solemn manner. Have a look with me, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and at his Father's and of the holy angels. 
The account in Mark's gospel says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. He told his disciples that they were living in an adulterous and sinful generation. The word adulterous is best taken figuratively here. In other words, it was a, it was a generation that was spiritually unfaithful, a generation that was not true to the covenant relationship with the Lord. By refusing to embrace the Messiah, they were unfaithful to Yahweh. Jesus told his disciples that they were living in a generation that had rejected him and his gospel. Therefore, as Christ was rejected, his disciples could also expect to be rejected. But Jesus said, don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. Stand up courageously and unashamedly for me. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. With this message, Jesus calls his people to a life of singular courage. We must be willing to be different, willing to stand for Christ when everyone around us is bowing before the gods of our age, willing to confess Christ even when those around us are denying him. Brothers and sisters, such courage is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Shortly before the crucifixion of our Lord, Peter was convinced that he would never be ashamed of Jesus. He insisted that he'd rather die. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But on that terrible night, in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter denied his master even with a solemn oath. His courage failed, and he was ashamed of Jesus. That's what we are like in ourselves. That's what Josiah and Mariella are like. We like to think that we're strong and courageous, that we would never deny Jesus, that we remain true to him even till death. The fact is, brothers and sisters, without the Spirit of God empowering us, we are weaklings, cowards, fearful and ashamed. When we feel the pressure and stand alone, we so quickly collapse. We fail to stand unashamedly for Christ. We need to pray continually for faith and courage to confess him before the world. It was when the Spirit of God came upon Peter that he unashamedly confessed Christ before thousands. He repented of his sinful denial and Jesus graciously forgave him. And by the power of the Spirit, he displayed singular courage as he proclaimed the gospel to an adulterous and sinful generation. How we need the enabling power of the Spirit of God to confess the precious name of our Savior. We need His power when we rub shoulders with customers who don't know Jesus. We need His power in the office when we're surrounded by unbelievers. We need His power when we interact with unbelieving neighbors. We need His power to speak when we ought to speak. Congregation, Verse 26 contains a very solemn warning. Jesus said, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes again. 
The second coming of Christ will be utterly spectacular. Verse 26 says he will come in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But what a terrible disappointment it will be for those to whom the exalted Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. You have disowned me in life and I disown you forever. You are ashamed of me and my words, and I am ashamed of you. You did not confess my name, and I will not confess you before the Father. Dear friends, how much better it is to confess Christ now and, and be despised by the world than to be disowned in shame by Jesus on the last day. May the Lord give to Josiah and Mariella by the power of the Spirit unwavering courage to confess Christ to this adulterous and sinful generation. And may we, may we be a church that stands unashamedly for the gospel in an age of spiritual darkness and apostasy. May we say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Lord Jesus, can it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee, ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glory shine through endless days? May God give us courage to exalt the name of the one who loved us, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. May we walk the path of genuine discipleship. May we, like the believers of the early church and like the believers during the 16th century Reformation, hold fast to his truth regardless of the consequences. And then, when Jesus returns, he will say, well done. You have confessed me before men. Now I confess you before my Father. You were not ashamed of me, and I am not ashamed of you. Enter into the joy of your master. Josiah Mariella, well done. Let us pray. Lord, we are mindful again this morning of our desperate need of the Spirit of God. We pray, Lord, that each one of us here would walk that path of genuine discipleship. That we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Lord, we see so many people chasing after the wind. So many people in our nation are trying to grasp whatever they can get a hold of and neglecting their own eternal soul. We pray that it would not be so for any of us who are here. We pray, Lord, that you will give that courage to confess Christ to us 
to our children, to the young people who are here, that your blessing would rest upon Josiah and Mariella as they go forth from here confessing your name in this world. We are weak. We are in need of the Spirit's empowerment. We pray, Lord, that you would empower Josiah and Mariella and that you would empower each one of us so that one day we may stand in your presence and hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servants. You have not been ashamed of me, and I am not ashamed of you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's following the path that leads to death and condemnation, would, Lord, would you in your mercy convict their heart? You bring them to repentance. Will you enable us all to walk the path of true discipleship? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.